This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew uh, chapter 9, verses 35 to uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 4. It can be found starting on page 814 in the Bible under your seat. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him, and he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the interim pastor here at Trinity. Happy to be here with you this morning. What an appropriate passage, right? For a church planting emphasis Sunday, we have this particular passage. Just proof of providence. Let's open it in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we begin by just thanking you for Dan and Lauren Mays and for Josh and Carly Hibbard. We, we do pray that you would create a movement both in Flanagan, Illinois and in Boise, Idaho as a result of their churches, that they would make disciples, that the kingdom would, would be witness to where they are, that you would bring health to their churches. We also thank you for the X29 Network, for their ministry all across the world, and for their example of just doggedly pursuing the Great Commission. As we approach the text, Lord, we, we just pray that you would allow us not only to interact with it intellectually, but that we would be formed by your word this morning. Amen. So if you guys haven't read it, on the Trinity website, Steve Bryan contributed a little blog post called Why Mission, and I, I really recommend it. It was very good. And in it, he describes Christians in the West as having a crisis of confidence, a crisis of confidence in the gospel. I thought I'd begin today just by sharing some thoughts that I had when I read that term. Here's what made me think of. More and more, there's talk in, in Europe and in the United States about this concept of a post Christian culture. Being told that we're, we're moving toward a post-Christian culture, and I, I, I totally agree. Now, this is more true of, of cities like Chicago or New York, but it's beginning even here in the suburbs. You can see it especially among folks who are sort of 40 years old and younger, this, this post-Christian culture. And here's what, what a post-Christian culture means. For a long time, Christianity has kind of acted as the culture's religion, right? The kind of cultural religion of the United States. And it held a lot of influence, e even for people who weren't Christians, just because on a day-to-day -day basis, they were interacting with the thoughts and the, the, the language, the terminology of Christianity. 
So Christians had, had this very, very prominent voice at the table, and sometimes they were very responsible with that privilege and, and other times not. But in any case, now for many people, that influence is entirely gone. Christianity has zero voice in their life. If anything, Christianity has become something to react against. So this out-of-date, out-of-touch, patriarchal institution that held power for too long and now it's rightfully being taken away. That's kind of the, a very common perception. So for, for more and more people, as they make decisions, as they face crises in their lives, the idea of going to the church for help would be as ridiculous as going to the horoscope, right? So in general, the public perception of Christians has, has veered toward the negative as well. So in our present climate, I think we kind of feel this. We feel it just kind of in the air. And so even if, even if we're not right, even if we're not reading the, the people we're talking to well, when we admit we're Christians, we sort of feel like we're walking into the, a bunch of stigmas, whether that's anti-intellectual or judgmental or, or, or whatever it is. We sort of just kind of sense this in the air, and it results in a crisis of confidence in the gospel. It's difficult for us to get to the point where we would actually articulate the gospel to somebody because more and more, we wonder if we really have anything to offer. Or maybe it'd be better to say that whatever it is we have to offer, the world doesn't want. So the question for today, what is it that we have to offer? Do we have something to offer? I think the, the emphatic answer that we get out of Matthew is that the church, absolutely, no matter how much confidence we have in it, the church absolutely has something to offer because what the world needs is what the church goes forth to announce. What the world needs is what the church goes forth to announce. So first what we see is that what the world needs is the gospel of the kingdom. Let's redo verses 35 to 38 in chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And they said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Matthew opens this section with kind of a summary of what Jesus has been doing and what he continues to do. And that's in verse 35 where he, he goes out through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So he's been going through the cities of Galilee. Much of the last two chapters have been in the city of Capernaum and now he's kind of moving on to other cities as well. But here's something really interesting. That verse, verse 35, we've already encountered that statement. It was in chapter 4, almost word for word, the exact same verse, verse 423. And so what you have, basically the Sermon on the Mount, all these miracles that Jesus has just done, they're bookended by these two almost exact verses. And I think the reason why is that it, it reminds us of what Jesus is here to do, what it is he's been doing. Jesus says, or Matthew says that Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom. He's been traveling around Galilee, announcing that God's reign is being restored to creation and that that world-spanning, giant restoration project is happening in 
and through Jesus and starting right now. Everything that Jesus does falls under this category of announcing and bringing the gospel of the kingdom. So let's just briefly recap. A lot of what we've seen fleshes this out, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the life of the kingdom, and he paints this picture of a community that I think almost anybody would want to be a part of, where people forgive each other, where they they get to address their creator as father, where they're trusting Jesus for all their anxieties. It's a community where people don't diminish each other's humanity through lust or through manipulation. It's the fulfillment of everything the law requires, and it's what every person, I think, ought to desire to be a part of, even if looking in from the outside, it kind of freaks them out, because it's also very demanding, right? It's the life of the kingdom, and it's what's best for the world. It's good news. And then Matthew led us on this tour of Capernaum that we just finished, where Jesus is calling people from all walks of life into discipleship, and he's showing them this glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. It's a place where all things exist in the way God wants them to. So disease and sickness and and death, all these things are turned backward. Dark spiritual forces are powerless in the kingdom. And with every miracle Jesus does, he's showing this picture. It's good news. The kingdom is coming. And of course, Jesus has yet to reveal exactly how he will bring the kingdom, but when he does, he'll do it by mounting a Roman crossbeam on his shoulders and ascending a hill where the forgiveness of sins will be offered, and that above all is good news. So Jesus' mission is to announce the good news of his kingdom, and that's exactly what he continues to do here at the end of chapter 9. He's got his disciples in tow, and now in, in verse 36, we're given this really rare moment in Matthew where this window opens, and we're able to see into exactly how Jesus is thinking and feeling as he looks out at the crowds. Right, so this is a window into the feelings of Christ. And what we see should stop us in our tracks. So some of you might have heard of William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig, he's a Christian apologist. So in other words, he's a thinker that basically, his work is to defend the plausibility and the, the reasonableness of Christianity. And he's, he's really very good. I, I like a lot of what he does. But he's not just a great apologist because of his content or his arguments, he's just kind of, he just seems like a really great guy. Like, he just has great character. He's cordial. He's polite. He dignifies his opponents when he's debating them. He's very, very kind, uh, pastoral. He makes sure that the gospel shows up in, in every one of his debates. I mean, he's just a very intentional, like a guy that you just kind of want to be around. Very kind to his opponents. Very kind. Unfortunately, the the same thing cannot be said about the YouTubers who post his debates online. Uh, The titles of the videos say it all. So here's a few titles of of some of the videos you might find of William Lane Craig. So the first one, William Lane Craig teaches a young punk a lesson. That's awesome. Uh, William Lane Craig, the following is all in caps, destroys, wrecks, and pwned atheist. Not even positive what pwned means. Along with a a whole bunch of videos, a whole slew of videos that are just some variation on the phrase, William Lane Craig, thug life. I'm not even positive what that means in this context, but William Lane Craig, thug life. And then it's the picture of him with 
the sunglasses and the blunt and all that. So now these, what these titles say to me, what these titles say to me, and moreover, what the view count on these titles say to me, what the comments on these videos say to me, is that many of us in the church do not share Jesus' feelings toward the lost. Instead of seeing the lost with compassion, we see them with contempt. As though the only reason why you would be lost is because you're just too dumb enough to be found. We quickly forget what the prophet Isaiah said that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And on Jesus' shoulders was laid the iniquity of us all. Now Jesus sees the crowds, and what he sees is the state of all humanity. Humans, all of us, are harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd were each desperately looking for validation, desperately trying to obscure our faults, vulnerable to the bottom, and yet each of us trying to prove our invulnerability to, to all the other people who are do, too busy proving their invulner, invulnerability to notice how invulnerable we are, right? Like, just that's our, our whole social... Con- Soren Kierkegaard, he's a, he's a Christian philosopher, he said it really well. He said, deep within all of us, there still lives the anxiety over the possibility of being alone in the world, forgotten by God, and overlooked among the millions and millions in this enormous household. I think... We all can relate to that, if we're honest. Now, we're here because of sin, because all of us have willingly participated in the problem of evil. So it is our responsibility. And yet, even so, Jesus looks out at the crowds, and what he sees is a flock of trembling, dejected animals who will certainly die if somebody does not lead them to life, and his heart goes out to them. Do we share Jesus' perspective? Do we see the lost as objects of compassion or as objects of contempt? But here's the thing, though. When we actually do begin to share Jesus' perspective, to experience what that's like, it's frightening right? Because there are lots and lots of lost people. To share Jesus' perspective is to be confronted with just the, the sheer hugeness of the task, right? And it will break our hearts. Many of us don't feel equipped or qualified to, to share Christ with even one of our neighbors, and so we, we end up walking away with this feeling of, what can just one person do? What can just one person do? So April and October, <clears throat> I was talking to Mary Napier about this just a few minutes before the service. April and October are wonderful times for trout fishermen in Lake County. So Lake County, Illinois, does not have a lot of trout in its reservoirs. But twice a year, what the Illinois DNR, Department of Natural Resources, what they'll do is they'll, they'll close down two lakes, Sand Lake and Banana Lake, and for about three weeks, and they'll stock them with beautiful, delicious rainbow trout, farm-raised rainbow trout. They'll stock them into these two lakes, let them get used to it, and then they have this big opening day where, where they allow folks to come out and fish for these rainbow trout. 
And Rainbow uh, Opening Day is, is just this huge event, tons of people. Now, trout can be very finicky. When I went to fish in April, I didn't want to go on opening day because I wanted to avoid the crowds. So I sat at the edge of Banana Lake for hours with like one other dude, and we did not catch anything, nothing. I'm not good at trout fishing. That might have been a factor. But still, it was like just me and this other guy. He might have caught one. All his minnows died. It was just hugely depressing. Like, so it was just the two of us against all these trout, apparently hundreds of trout that were supposed to be in this lake, just the two of us sitting there catching nothing. We only had the baits that we brought, which were very few in number. And, and, and like, so I walked away that day feeling like, is it even possible to catch trout in this lake, right? Is it even possible? Now, if I had gone on opening day, and I have gone on opening day in the past, I would have stood there, and, and I would have been shoulder to shoulder, yes, with other, with other fisher, fishermen and fisherwomen, and there'd be families, and there'd be kids, and, and just expert dudes, and like the, the waiters, and they're shore fishing, I don't know why they need them, but in the waiters, and then like novices, there would have been tons of people, all of us standing there with our lines in the water. And now maybe the bites that I'd get would, would have still been very few. Maybe. But if I were to look up from just what I was doing, as I was just faithfully fishing and looking around the lake, what I would have seen would be angler after angler bringing in trout. Because when all of, of us are fishing all together, all committed to it, that's when you walk away realizing that absolutely trout can be caught in this lake. Trinity, don't be intimidated by the scale of the task. Be motivated by it. Each one of you is not individually responsible just by yourself to carry it. No one person can do everything, but everyone can do something. Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. There are trout in those waters. What we need are anglers. Be faithful, be patient, but don't bring in your line yet. We need all of us to be announcing the gospel in the best way we know how, because what the world needs is the gospel of the kingdom. Not only is the gospel of the kingdom what the world needs, but the gospel of the kingdom is what the church goes forth to announce. Chapter 10, 1 through 4, if you'll read that with me again. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So now we have this moment where Jesus brings together his 12 disciples, right? There were, there were lots of people who would have followed Jesus around, the crowds, but he sort of had this inner circle that he chose, this inner circle of 12 disciples who got special access, essentially. Special access to Jesus, more teaching, more time. And check out what Matthew does. Jesus gives them the authority to do what? cast out demons, to heal every disease and every affliction. That should sound super familiar. Because we just read 
every disease and every affliction, that little phrase, we just read that in chapter 9. And months ago, we read it in chapter 4. What's Matthew saying? Why this repetition of Jesus twice said to do something and the disciples once said to do something? What Matthew's saying is that Jesus is going to continue his work through his people, through the disciples. They are going to participate in what Jesus is doing in the world. But also check this out. Have you ever asked the question, why does Jesus choose 12? Why 12? Is it just practical? Like, I can't handle 13, you know, or but, and then 11 seems like I'm being lazy. Like, I don't think it's that. Why does he choose 12? So we've talked a lot about how Jesus saw his ministry and how we should see his ministry as, as sort of him re-upping Israel. Jesus is the true Israel, a representative for the whole nation. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles well, where did Israel, the nation of Israel, get its name? What, what character got renamed Israel? Jacob. Jacob got renamed Israel. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. Jacob has twelve sons. And out of these twelve men came the twelve tribes of Israel. The whole nation of God's people emerged out of these sort of twelve beginning people. They had children who had children who had children. And over the course of centuries, the nation of Israel emerges. God's people. And now Jesus does something incredible. He chooses twelve disciples. Why? Because those disciples are about to make disciples. And those disciples are about to make disciples. Who will make disciples? Who will make disciples? And slowly over time, all of us in the church will trace our spiritual lineage back to those 12 people. A new nation is being born, and it is the church, God's people. You see that? Well, check this out. It gets even better. Look at the ending of chapter 9. Jesus looks out at the crowds. He sees this harvest ripe for picking, right? It is plentiful. He says what we ought to be praying for is laborers. Who are the laborers? Who are the laborers? The question at the end of chapter 9 is answered at the beginning of chapter 10. You see that? The church are the laborers. God is going to look out at a world that needs the gospel and he sends his church. The gospel of the kingdom is what the church goes forth to announce. God is answering those prayers by sending laborers. So in summary, what the world needs is what the church goes forth to announce. And what it needs is the gospel of the kingdom. So to return to our original question, what does the church have to offer? The gospel. The world is hurting, and it is lost, and it needs to hear the gospel. There, there is no one who doesn't need to hear the gospel. Now, I could see us still coming to the, the end of this passage and looking out at a post-Christian context and still very much feeling a crisis of confidence. What is it that we have to offer? Is it, is it really true that the gospel is relevant at all to the people in my life? I'm convinced it is. And so bear with me a second while I demonstrate. 
to spouses caught in broken marriages in which the resentment runs so deep, it feels pointless to try to heal. The gospel announces that God has given you grace in Christ, therefore you can be refreshed with grace for each other. To those trapped in work that feels meaningless, to those who are struggling to find any work at all, the gospel announces that you now have the support of the family of God, and that nothing, that, and that meaning in life doesn't come from your work, but from Christ's work, and so you may be striving for a time, but you're not going to do it alone, and you have nothing to prove. For those who are grieved by the conflict and injustice in the world, overwhelmed by a culture more impressed with arguments that sound good than with good sound arguments, to those who are desperate to see peace and flourishing, the gospel announces that God is just, that he will lead you in the paths of righteousness, and that one day his glory will cover the face of the earth as waters cover the sea. To those who have never been celebrated, to those who have always been overlooked, to those who never seem to be anyone's first choice in friend or first choice in date, the gospel announces that you are invited into the kingdom by the blood of Jesus and that at his table, you are not second class and you are not forgotten. To those who feel unworthy, who know yourselves well enough to know your own guilt, to the addicted, to the lustful, to the habitually sinful, the gospel announces that forgiveness and cleanliness is offered to you because Jesus has died and by his spirit and by the friendship and fellowship of God's people, you can begin to change. To those frantically filling your lives with experiences, entertainment, achievement, because at the end of the day, whether you know it or not, you're terrified by your own mortality. The gospel announces that death itself has been overthrown by the resurrection. You have nothing to fear. To those who are sick, the terminally ill, to the, terminally ill to the dying, the gospel announces that in the kingdom, your pain and sickness will have no place. God will make you new. The gospel announces assurance for the anxious, hope for the despairing, forgiveness for the guilty, wonder for the disenchanted, self-forgetfulness to the self-conscious, comfort to the grieving, company for the lonely. I could go on. This is why we ourselves came to Jesus in the first place. And it's why we must never stop preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And it's why we can't stop preaching the gospel to each other. It's why we must make disciples. It's why we must plant churches. It's why we must send out missionaries. It's all because what the world needs is what the church goes forth to announce that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and the kingdom is coming. Trinity, you are the church. You are the people of God. And you have been given what the world needs needs to hear. You've been given what you need to hear. And so be patient. Be long-suffering in friendship to your neighbors, to each other. Be intentional. Be full of love. And announce the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promise that your gospel will be made known across the world. We thank you that you have invited us to participate in announcing it, to take part in your work. I pray, Lord, that we would see nothing as more important than, than your gospel going out. 
We also thank you, Lord, that we never graduate from the gospel, but that it is enough for us to experience healing and growth for the rest of our days in this in-between time between the old world and your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We give you the glory. Amen.